At the Canaan Church, our mission is bringing people to Christ and helping every person to become a mature disciple in Christ. Canaan Christian Church, where people dare to dream. We're in Proverbs, starting with chapter 10 now. And, and, and remember that chapters 1 through 9 pre- prepared us for our studies now in chapter 10 through chapter 31. And the difference is that in chapters 1 through chapter 9, in Proverbs, we looked at uh, a, passage, a, a, a passage of Scripture that was more in like a lump kind of presentation where it deals most kind of with some kind of story context to some degree and uh, uh, and looking at how three or four verses in a row speak to us about a particular uh, revelation. But when you get to chapter 10, um, the, the context changes because there's about 375 sayings that comes to us in two verses. So rather than looking at the two verses, we now in our studies are looking at this book of Proverbs in terms of topics. We're looking at it in terms of topics. And so um, I want to pick back up where we left off uh, the last time. And so our studies will take us in chapter 10. We'll be looking at some verses in chapter 11, even some in chapter 12, because we want to look at how different verses in Proverbs comes together to speak to us about a topic and a revelation that God gives us concerning that topic. So um, uh, in the last time I was teaching, we talked about the importance of choice. We talked about faithfulness to God. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that today. And then we're going to go on to talk about fellowship in community Um, inventory of outcomes and then we may make our way to the second thesis of chapter 10. The first thesis of chapter 10 in Proverbs speaks to us about rewards for conduct, rewards for conduct. The second theme of chapter 10 speaks to us about diligence in work, diligence in work. And uh, and so uh, as we look uh, again uh, uh, in chapter 10 in terms of faithfulness to God chapter 10 verse 9 reads like this he who walks with integrity walks securely but he who perverts his ways will become known and then uh, let's look at verse 23 in chapter 10 verse 23 says to do evil is like sport to a fool but a man of understanding has wisdom. Uh, let's look at verse 29. The way of the Lord is strength for the upright, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. And then in chapter 11, verse 3, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Let's look at verse 5 through 7. The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. 
The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be caught by their lust. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. Now, all of these verses are speaking to us about this comparison and between um, righteousness and wickedness, and it speaks to us about faithfulness to God. When we talk about studying the book of Proverbs, we're talking about living with godly wisdom. When we were unsaved, when we had no relationship with God, the only thing that we were thinking about was our own self-will. We were living our lives totally centered around our own wishes, our own passions, our own desires. But once you come to know God in Christ, there is literally a revolution that takes place in one's life. To be saved means that one has been transformed, one has been changed. And the change is not just a one-time episode, but the change is a lifelong experience because I have been changed, but I'm always changing. When I get saved, God justifies me and he declares me righteous because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's justification. God declares you righteous. And then after he declares us righteous, then there is the ongoing work of sanctification so that the grace that saved me is also the grace that can sustain me because God doesn't save me and then say revert back to your crazy ways he saves me and then he says now move forward and keep growing in me it's sanctification it is not taking a tambourine and beating it on your leg sanctification is God's taking the worst that's in us out of us and putting the best of himself in us. So we ought to look at our lives and ought to be able to say at the end of every year, I'm better than what I used to be. I got a closer walk with God. Why join the church? Why give your life to Christ? And then 10 years later, you're in the same place you were when you first joined the church. Something's wrong with that picture, isn't it? There should be this continuous, ongoing sanctification, a pursuit of holiness. We're saying like the Apostle Paul, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth under those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We got to keep pressing for the upward way. And then there's the glorification. Glorification is one day we will see God for ourselves and we shall be all that he wants us to be. So grandmama said, none but the righteous shall see God. Justification, I have been saved. Sanctification, I am being saved. Glorification, I shall be saved. Now, because we're in the process of becoming, then we need God to give us what? Wisdom, right? If I'm not going to stay where I used to be, 
if I'm going to be more of what God wants me to be, then I need God to give me insight. I need God to give me clarity. I need God to give me understanding. And this is where studying his word becomes pivotal. Why, Pastor? Because God's will is inextricably tied up in his word. If I know his word, I can know what? His will. And Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you shall be my what? Disciples. And you shall know the truth. And what's the truth going to do? It's going to set you free. And whom the Son sets free, they are what? Free indeed. Right? You see, and when we came to Jesus, all of us come with a whole lot of baggage. Right, right. We come with baggage. You know, I came to Jesus just as I was. The hymn writer says, weary, wounded, and what? Sad. But I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. We come as we are, but God keeps freeing us. He keeps delivering us, you know? So those strongholds, the things that the enemy has set up, taking advantage of our weaknesses, our idiosyncrasies, our, our passions, those dark desires, he, he, he frees us. The chains are broken. And we keep becoming more what God wants us to be because we are in his word. The psalmist says, that word, O God, have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So Proverbs is talking to us about the wisdom of God. Wisdom is not advice. Wisdom is God. And it is his presence and his power operating our lives because we are allowing God to be fully God in our lives. So when we talk about faithfulness to God, and that's the subject, faithfulness to God, we're talking about the contrast between righteousness and wickedness. And righteousness and wickedness are very much different, are they not? How many of y'all know about wickedness? I got to set somebody free. Okay, okay. Sandra, let's set them free. Sandra, you know anything about wickedness? Huh? You know, okay. And baby, I do too. Amen. I know a lot about wickedness. So now, my, the first lady says she knows about wickedness. Pastor says he knows about wickedness. So I'm going to ask y'all again. Anybody here know about wickedness? Yeah, yeah. We all know about wickedness. But aren't you glad that now you know something about righteousness? Yeah, yeah. Because see, my mind still works right. So I can recall what my life was like before I was saved. <laughs> yeah, I can recall what it was like before I was saved. Amen. Uh, my wife showed me uh, uh, some pictures. Is Betty, is, is Betty here today? Okay, I'm going to have to talk to Betty Kinzer. She sent my wife some pictures that she got from somewhere of me and my twin sister when we were at North High School. And Sandra showed me the pictures this morning, so I'm okay now because I looked at the pictures and the pictures looked to be somewhat safe. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but I got to talk to Betty. The girl, girl, look, quit trying to find stuff. All right, and if you go research, don't research on me. Amen. Because <laughs> you start going back to North High School. That's when I was not known as Walter. 
that's when I was known as Walt. Those were days when my life was characterized by wickedness. Amen. I'm so glad that I'm now known as Walter. Some righteousness that showed up on the table. Amen. Okay. So, but there's a difference, isn't it, between living without Christ and now living what? With Christ. Now, I want to I make this statement to you, and I wrote it down so I could say it right. Righteousness and wickedness, then together with wisdom and folly, their counterparts. See, when we say righteousness versus wickedness, it's like also saying wisdom versus folly. And so when we think about that, it's not so much specific acts performed under the pressure of immediate decisions. You know, when we think about righteousness versus wickedness or wisdom versus folly, we're thinking about, in many cases, there's a decision that I'm making under pressure at a particular moment, a particular episode. But the fact of the matter is that uh, is not just uh, a pattern, but faithfulness is a disposition more than a deed. Faithfulness is a dis more of a dis disposition than it is a deed. See, if I'm thinking of faithfulness, then I'm going to perform a deed. I'm going to do something good today. I'm going to help an old lady, old brother, old man walk across the street. Or I'm going to give something to a homeless person. We think about a deed. But faithfulness is not so much a deed as faithfulness is a way of life. It's a way of life. It's I'm seeking to live a life of righteousness. I'm seeking to live a life of wisdom as opposed to living a life of wickedness and a life of folly. I want it to be the life that I live. So when we talk about the Christian life, Christianity is not a title, is not a tag that you wear. Christianity is a life that you live. It is a practice of your life. It ain't something that you just do on Sunday. You know, I'm going to live any way I want between Monday morning and about midnight Saturday night. And then about 12.01 Sunday morning, I'm going to flip the script and then I'm going to become holy for about two and a half hours on Sunday. After the benediction, I'm going back to what I want to do. It's like spiritually being Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. No, that's not the Christian life. I'm a Christian wherever you see me on any given day of the week. Right? Not just Sunday. You know, when you see me Monday, I'm going to be the same way on Monday as you see me on Sunday or any day of the week. Look at somebody say, acting is tiresome. Yeah, don't you get tired of acting? Yeah, why act? Just be who you are. But be who you are as a Christian, what? Every day, all the time. 
Amen. Somebody said to St. Francis of Assisi, you know, um, are we going out today in the streets to preach? St. Francis of Assisi said, preach all the time. And he paused and said, use words when necessary. Did y'all catch that? Preach what? All the time. Use words when what? Necessary. What was he really saying? Your life is the sermon that you preach. Right? Let your life be a message to others. You know? You look at me as your pastor, man, ordained, licensed, ordained, called to preach the gospel. But in a very real sense, all of us should be preaching. Because you should be preaching by the way you what? Live. Look at somebody say, somebody's watching you. You, they got their eyes on you and they're going to determine whether they should come to church they're going to determine whether they should give their life to Christ by what they what? observe in your daily living amen now let's go to another uh, theme or another topic and that is fellowship in community fellowship in community in chapter 10 look at, look at chapter 10 verse 1 the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Children ought to consider how their lives affect their parents and vice versa because we live in fellowship with one another. Look at chapter 11, verse 10. Verse 10 says, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. Have you ever thought about the impact of your life on your, on your community? Have you ever thought about the impact of your life on your city, on your neighborhood? We live in community. God has not called us or created us to go live on Walden Pond by ourselves. He's called us and created us to live as social beings in relationship with one another. And to be saved means that we know how to live in relationship with God and we know how to live in relationship with one another. Somebody asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Dante, Jesus says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he says, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus says, listen, you want to love others right, love yourself right, and love God right. But you cannot love others right if you don't love yourself right. And you can't love yourself right if you don't love God right. How many people are walking around today with self-hatred? They don't like themselves. <laughs> That's why they treat you so bad, because they don't like themselves. But if you love God right, you treat yourself right. If you treat yourself right, you can treat what? Others right. Don't ever expect somebody to love you that don't love themselves. And don't expect nobody to love themselves if they don't love God. We live in community. And then look at chapter 11, verse 14. Um, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Walter, that's one of daddy's favorite verses in Proverbs. Where there is no counsel, the people 
fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. The, the, the Lord has, um, he's allowed me to um, do some great things as the pastor of the Canaan Church. Some people might say that I've been successful when you consider the fact that I started this church with 97 people, no place to have church, didn't even have an offering plate to put the offering in. We've come from there to where we are now with the size of our congregation, a growing congregation still, beautiful facility and all that's going on in ministry. But I would say to people, if they want to say success, I'd probably call it more of being fruitful, is that I take great joy in telling people that I'm grateful to God for giving me a mind, a heart, and a disposition to be open to God bringing people into my life who could help give me wisdom and guidance and instruction on what I needed to do and how I needed to do it. Meaning that I understand I'm a gifted man. I think I'm in touch with what my gifts are in particular, preaching, teaching, casting vision, administration, and developing people. I would say those are my primary gifts. But I've never operated under the illusion that I had to have all the gifts. So I have tried to practice my ministry in a way of allowing God to bring other gifted people into my life to handle and do the other things that needed to be done for the development and the fruitfulness of this church. And that's not only people within the church, that's people outside the church. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of Al Fazio, and he's like a real estate attorney. And uh, in the development history of our church, we wouldn't do anything. We wouldn't buy nothing. We wouldn't enter into any negotiation about anything without first talking to Al Fazio. He's a real estate attorney, he's a Christian man. But I trusted him so much, I felt like that Mr. Fazio would make sure that we were not entering into any contract that was not favorable for the church. We had um, Mr. Joe Stegley, he was the CPA for our church and still is, he's with another company, a larger company now called Blue. Mr. Mr. Stieglitz in his upper 80s. But he handled all of our accounting piece to make sure that we were in alignment and where we needed to be as a 501c3 and made sure that everything in terms of our financial administration was integritous and on point so that every year we would turn our books into him to make sure every T was crossed, every I was dotted, and that we were practicing of, uh, our financial administration with great integrity. Amen. And I could go on and on about people that God brought into my life. The man, he's retired now. He, uh, um, he used to be the president of National City Bank. Um, yeah, Morton Boyd. He was a great help to me. A great help. All of us need to thank God 
the counselors. People that God brings into your life to help you to make appropriate decisions. Don't, don't, you, you make a great error living your life thinking you know it all. I hate to bust your bubble, but you ain't that bad. No, you, you need some counselors. You, you need counselors. And, and uh, what I like about that verse, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is what? Safety. Fellowship provides a context for human choices and affirms their importance. You, you know, when you think about wisdom, you th you're thinking about making choices in life. And with every choice you make, there's going to be what? Consequences. There's no need in thinking you're going to make a choice and the consequences ain't going to come up. Come on, you reap what you sow. Amen. So choices are important, you know, and um, we make pivotal decisions best in a context of fellowship where we measure their impact on others and seek the help of seasoned friends to protect ourselves and them from nearsightedness and subjectivity. We make choices, and particularly when the choices you make are affecting people other than yourself. Like in a family context, it behooves a husband and a wife to talk about the decisions that are being made for the family. It behooves a husband and a wife to seek counsel outside of themselves in terms of your, who your doctor's gonna be, who your uh, attorney's gonna be, who your tax person is going to be, you know. You, you need key people in your life that can speak to you, that helps you in your family life. Come on, talk to me somebody. Amen. See, some of us are dealing with problems because it was too subjective. Too subjective. It was just how we saw it. Amen. You know. And, and so when you're talking about making decisions that don't just affect you, but it's going to affect others, then when you are making the decision in the multitude of counselors, it protects you from nearsightedness and subjectivity. You can wake up any of our trustees, any of them, you can wake them up at midnight and ask them, is there anything particular the pastor said that he don't care about? And they'll tell you at midnight, just wake them straight up. And they'll say, pastor tells us he don't care anything about our opinions and he don't care anything about being um, speculative in our thinking. And I don't. I don't care about people's opinions. I don't care about people's speculation. Why? Because I don't care about my own opinion. <laughs> I don't. Why, Pastor? Because it doesn't require anything. The only thing I need to do to have an opinion is open my mouth and start talking. 
That's all that's required. And the problem with people who are over-opinionated, and you got to be careful. When you meet somebody like that who's over-opinionated, you stop waving yellow flags because they're dangerous. They're dangerous. And they're dangerous because they are so over-opinionated, they convince themselves that what they're saying is the truth. They give opinions like, like it's the truth. And I could give you examples, but I don't have time. But they're dangerous. People who are very opinionated and operate on speculation. And this is what you'll also find about those people. The people who are very opinionated and operate on speculation is that they're given to lying. What you mean, Pastor? When they're talking to you the first time, they give their opinions so strong, just like it's the truth. Now, as soon as what they were talking about fails or doesn't come to pass, when you talk to them the second time, they're going to change it. <laughs> they ain't going to own up to what they said the first time. Well, that, that, that really ain't what I meant. What, what did you mean? They're going to change it. They ain't going to own up to it. They're going to blame somebody else. They're going to find fault somewhere else. But here's what's dangerous. They made you, listen to me, they made you make a decision that now is going to cost you based on their being so opinionated. But they ain't going to come and bail you out when you find yourself between a rock and a hard place. They ain't coming to rectify it. They're going to leave you out there all by yourself. So what do you operate on, Pastor? And what would you tell us to operate on? I'm going to tell you to operate on facts and faith. Look at somebody and say, God gave me a mind. Yeah. So that's why you have to read. That's why you have to study. That, that's why you, 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 you keep searching for truth. You know, the people who I really let get close to me are people that I can ask this question. What, what have you read lately? Or like, what are you reading? Now, anybody I talk to that, that I found out they ain't reading nothing, okay, you all right. You all right? I ain't got nothing against you. You all right? It's okay. You all right? You all right? You okay? But we're going to have this kind of relationship. It's going to be kind of distant. But, but you can't be like this with me and you ain't reading nothing. Because in this life, one must always be reading and studying, doing their due diligence, searching for truth because if you live long enough you're going to find it necessary to speak truth to power talk to me somebody right I'm not going to use you no more Walter this is the last time I'm going to use you my son my son is in this sanctuary right now and he okay I guess he's okay with it he turns 40 this month <laughs> you get it oh he turns 40 this month. 
And he said to me the other day, yeah, and you turn in 69 next month. And he says, and you'll be 70 next year. <laughs> okay. But I feel just as responsible. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. I feel just as responsible to keep speaking truth into his life at 40 as I did when he was 12. Because what he needs from me as a father, he don't need me to be his buddy. He got buddies. <laughs> he needs me to be a father. And a father is someone who can keep pouring into his son, making a deposit into his son. Because I ain't going to always be here. My yesterdays are longer than my tomorrows. So I want to keep pouring into his life so that when I'm no longer here, he can pull something from the well. He can draw some water out, you see, Samuel said, this is what my father taught me. See, the question is, what am I going to leave him? And it's got to be more than the house. It's got to be more than a car. It's got to be more than money and an insurance policy. I got to leave him a legacy. I got to leave him principles and values upon which how to live his life. Are y'all listening to me? Okay? We're talking about counsel, right? And so that's why I said we operate by what? Facts. We, we're reading, we're studying, we're making sure we're in the know. Amen. You don't have to operate on assumptions when you can find out the truth. Just keep reading, just keep studying, just keep inquiring about the truth. That's why as African Americans, we need to and we give us a work on it this morning. We're going to start this class on black history. Yeah. DeSantis, um, uh, Brother Hurt, he, he, in Florida, he just wants to shut out black history in public schools. Shut it out. I call him DeSantis. A friend of mine called him DeSatan. I didn't say that. A friend of mine said that. He's going to cut it out. Okay, does that stop us from learning our history? Let's teach it ourselves. Because somebody said history hyphen is history. You're going to get that on the way home. I don't need history. I need to know history. And we need to tell the truth. That's the whole issue with critical race theory. The reason why people don't want to uh, affirm critical race theory is cause it makes people have to face the truth. The ugliness of our nation. They want to act like slavery didn't take place. What do you mean? It did take place. That's why that Jewish theologian told me when I was in Jerusalem, he said, the mistake you all made, you quit telling your story and you quit singing your song. Jewish people don't let nobody make them forget their history. And a little Jewish boy, a little Jewish girl, they cannot make it through the bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah without knowing their history. How dare us let our children grow up without knowing their history. The privileges that they get to, I see some students from Simmons here. God bless you, I'm so glad to see all y'all. Oh, they staff, okay, I'm glad to see the staff. When I said student, she looked at me, she said, well, keep blessing me, man of God, keep blessing me. Yeah. 
You do look that young, okay. But, but you all are enjoying privileges that ain't always been around. And the privileges that you enjoy was paid for with blood, sweat, and tears. That march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, that wasn't no make-believe, it happened. And it was so ugly, it was called Bloody Sunday. You can't, we can't let young people today take it for granted, the, the privileges that they got. And it's up to us to make sure that they know it. That's what I mean when I say facts. And then the other that I live by is faith. Facts and faith. I need God to give me the faith to believe when there appears to be no reason to believe. Jesse Jackson said, keep hope alive. Yeah. The only thing that's more powerful than fear is hope. Oh, I better be careful because that'll make me go into a tomb. Because hope will keep you from jumping off a bridge. Hope will keep you from taking a gun and blowing out your brains. Hope will keep you from becoming pessimistic. I don't care how dark today gets. I got tomorrow. And when tomorrow gets in, it don't look too good. I got tomorrow. And when that day shows up and it still don't look too good, you just keep telling yourself, I got a tomorrow. That's hope. That's faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Real quick, just turn to somebody and say, don't you ever stop believing. <clears throat> Come on, look at somebody and say, keep hoping in God. Yeah. 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 But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Let me tell you this real quick story about Canaan. I've been the pastor of this church for 40 years. 40 years passing one church. Ron, in 40 years, I have never made any decision concerning the Canaan church that was of any significance by myself. Not one. <laughs> Not one. Every decision I've ever made about this church that was of any significance, I did it in the multitude of counselors. Because to do otherwise would have been too, sub, uh, uh, too subjective. So like when it came to buying this facility, now you listen to this very carefully. I'm praying we done outgrew our facility over on Dixie Highway, uh, cars parked everywhere, all in the grass, Stephanie. And people say, how was I saw? Oh, it was great. It was Negro Fabulous. They were everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. It looked good too, except for when it rained. Because then the cars can't park on the grass because the grass is wet. So they parking all down Dixie Highway. I told the trustees at that time, I said, we need not fool ourselves. Don't keep thinking folk going to park down there past McDonald's and keep walking back up in this rain. We, we need, we are, we've outgrown this property, this facility. We, we need some more property. We need a, a larger facility. Short story, I prayed. And God gave me the vision for this house. And I kept praying 
and I was on the treadmill at the YMCA downtown and the Holy Ghost says, I've got people that'll help you make this happen. I jumped off the, off the treadmill, went back to my office. I wrote down three names of people to go talk to and I only ended up talking to one. Never talked to the other two. And the one I talked to, I'd never been in a meeting with this man in my life. And I got an appointment with him like this. Somebody said, that was a miracle. I said, how'd you get a pump so quick? I said, that's called and ask. <laughs> There's no other expl explanation except for God opened the door. I went in his office at 11 o'clock. The meeting was 30 minutes. I went in his office at 11 o'clock. At 11.30, I was standing down in the lobby with an $8 million backing. I went in his office. He said, what? He said Pastor Mom, what did you want? I said, I'm trying to buy this facility on the Heights Lane. I said, I'd like for you to back me with a million dollars, and I'm going to use that as leverage to get the bank to give us the rest. He said to me, Pastor Malone, he says, I admire you. He says, you're somewhat like me. I didn't know where he was going with that. He says, nobody makes a difference in this life unless they're willing to take a risk. And then he said, he says, I'm going to back you. He said, how much the building cost? I said, 7.3 million. He says, I'm going to back you with 7 million. He says, I want you to take this note to the bank, tell the bank to go as far as they can go, and whatever they don't do, I'll pick up the rest. When he went back into the other part of his office, I'm kind of doing this, you know, because I'm saying, I don't want to look like a fool. Did this man say 7 million? Because I just came to get a million. And I didn't want to say something sound and he thought I'd lost my mind, you know. So I said, well, just listen when he comes back out and maybe he'll repeat it. He comes back out of his office and he wrote on a piece of paper. I wish I had saved that paper. He says, I'm writing this note. He says, uh, to whomever it concerns, that I'm going to support Pastor Walt Malone uh, Jr. and the Canaan Missionary Baptist Church to purchase the facility owned by Southeast Christian. I'm going to back him with $7 million and closing can take place at whatever date is suitable between the two churches. Signed his name. And then not only did he say he was going to back me with $7 million, then he said, Pastor, if it takes $8 million, get it. Then he said, and if you get it, the Sunday that you march in, I'm going to do something special for you that Sunday. Now, when we marched in, that same man wrote a check to this church for $100,000. Now, knowing that I got this $8 million backing, Robert, I, I got the $8 million backing. The man that told me he's backing my $8 million. Did I go and and consummate the deal. Everybody shout no. Mm -mm. First thing I did is I asked all the trustees and all the deacons to meet with me. And I told them, I said, we can buy Southeast Christian. And I said, I've got an $8 million backing, but what do you all think? What are your thoughts? How do you feel about this? Do you all feel like we should move forward? See, I didn't want it to be subjective. I wanted the counsel of a multitude. I wanted to hear what they had to say.
because I felt like that the decision had to be made by all of us collectively. Amen. Because I felt like that that would be as much a part of the confirmation as the gentleman saying how much he would back me with. Because I knew enough as a pastor, you can't lead people where they don't want to go. Even if you got an $8 million backing, right? People got to be on board, right? Brother Jose Bradley, who that building, that room is named after, he stood up and said, Pastor, he says, now, if you want to talk to us for 45 more minutes, you can. <laughs> he said, but I'm going to tell you now, we with you. Then I took it from there. Still ain't consummated the deal. Then I called a church meeting. Then I brought it before the church. I said to the church, this is an opportunity. This is what we can do. But we got to vote on it. Because I wasn't going to do it just, I'm the pastor. I said, this is what we're going to do. No, let's vote. Are y'all willing to take this challenge? Because if I say I'm leading, ain't nobody following me. I ain't leading. I'm just taking a stroll. <laughs> right? If you're leading somebody's what? Following. So I wanted to make sure that the church would make this commitment as well. It wasn't just enough for me to make it. They had to make it. Are y'all listening to me? Decisions are made in the multitude of counselors. It's not just by you. Amen. And because everybody was a part of that decision making, everybody then could buy in. Everybody could make the commitment. And the rest has been history. And God has graciously, Stephanie, blessed our church. And we're getting ready to liquidate this mortgage note. Hallelujah. People, people, Sister Hurt was wondering if we were going to fail. They said he got them going out there on Hikes Lane. He got them on a goose chase now. They standing back waiting to hear that the door's been closed. Baby, the doors are open, people are joining, people being saved, people being blessed, and we're getting ready to liquidate the mortgage you note, know, and we're just getting started. Amen. Because we're going to keep blessing people all across this city, the nation, and the world. Amen. Now, uh, I'm going to stop there. We'll pick back up next Wednesday on the inventory of outcomes and then we're going to move into the second part, diligence in work. Um, there's a different future for the righteous and the wicked. I'm going to say it again. There's a different future for the righteous and the wicked. Amen. I believe that there's a heaven so I believe that there's a hell. Amen. And, and I believe God takes care of some of it right here. Dr. King said the arc of the moral universe may be long, but it's bent toward justice. When you get home tonight, read Psalm 37. The psalmist says, don't you worry yourself about the wicked, for they shall be cut down and wither like the grass. Commit thy way unto the Lord. And what will he do? He'll give you the desires of your heart. Amen. Amen. That's why I ain't worrying about the orange man. Mm -mm. No, God got a place for the orange man. 
Amen. God going to take care of him. Amen. Because you can't just keep on doing wrong and doing wrong and doing wrong and think you're going to get away with it. No. No, you may get by, but you ain't going to get away. Mm-mm. No. There's a place where the wicked will cease from troubling. The weary going to be at rest. The crooked road is going to be made straight and the rough place is going to be made smooth. The lamb is going to lay down with the lion. Amen. Every day going to be like Sunday and sweet Sabbath will have no end. Jesus defeated Satan, Paul says, publicly. It wasn't behind a closed door, Robert. Publicly. Crucified on a cross. Publicly. But he was heard to say, it is finished. Not I'm finished, but it is finished. Buried in another man's tomb, but he got up Sunday morning, said all power in heaven and earth is in my hands. And the Bible says he showed himself alive to the disciples for 40 days. You know what I'm getting ready to do, church? On Easter Sunday morning, I'm going to give you a card that's going to lead us in 40 days of prayer. Starting Easter Sunday morning, we're going to go into 40 days of special prayer. Because Jesus, when he got up, he showed himself alive, Sandra, to the disciples for 40 days. In a noisy world in which we live, up above my head, I hear music in the air. There must be a God somewhere. The people represent the church no matter where we are. So stay connected and reach others as we grow in Christ.